Hello, hello, hello. Bit of a slight addition to this podcast before we start this week. Namely, for all that is good in the world, what the hell has happened to the world this week? I'm finishing writing this the day two major events happened in quick succession. One, U.S. State Texas's Attorney General interprets current law to believe that since transition care should be illegal, therefore parents of transgender children should be suspect of child abuse. So, in short order, this state aims to criminalize abortion, force mothers to keep the children, and if the kid just just happens to decide they don't fit into their gender, it's a crime on the parents to have custody of them. Chuck one thing up for the angst of the world, and Lord, it kept going from there. For context, I am, or was, on a teaching day with multiple lectures throughout the morning. We had an innocent lecture about toxicology, and halfway through, boom, Russia invades Ukraine. You think that the lead-up intentions would not lead to actions such as this, but no. Russia's direct message is that if anyone intervenes in Russia quote-unquote defending its border, then there would be consequences of which the world has never seen. We're in times none of us have seen in our lifetime, and only may have heard of the last times these happened about a hundred or so years ago. Forever World War we want to pick, whichever Spanish flu we want to pick. We are slowly moving through a pandemic which, last time, took at minimum three years to push past the peak and a decade or so of wiggle room between the next major international conflict. History now is battling to see which part of it repeats itself first, and we can't let that happen. It's the nature of it, why we study it, so we can pick and choose the only beneficial parts we want to repeat. And when parts we don't want to repeat occur again, we know how to deal with them. In the interim, in the uncertainty our world is living in, yes, we are exhausted. Yes, our emotional bandwidth is strained from doom scrolling and being battered by being separated from our loved ones, separated by surgical masks, and contemplating what world this can possibly become next. One thing we can do is keep pushing each other forward so none of us fall back or get battered into fatigue or nothingness. I'm going to continue with my original completely unrelated podcast today because we need a moment of random reprieve from the constant recognition of everything that's going on, allowing us not to be thrust back into this world's craziness at least for the next tens of minutes. It's early stages here, but I've attached below... More specific examples how you can support either of the two causes I've mentioned. Whether you want to advocate or support the efforts in Ukraine. Or if you want to advocate and support the LGBTQ, LG, LGBTQI++ community in Texas.
In the meantime, as always, take care of yourselves. Carve yourselves a little nook into your day for complete and utter tangentiality without completely losing yourself in it. Prepare yourself for this tone shift now. In three, two, one, and let's start, shall we? In the only way we know how to, immediately. No more time to waste, no need for further delays. We have a 10-day gap since our last catch-up and the wandering thoughts have stockpiled. Tangents that have not had a chance to escape from the mind, stressors that have pent up and have had no opportunity to be released. Coping strategies are the usual exercise, exercise. Jim can only get you so far. Here is the moment where most of the thoughts come out though. The brief time slot where I rant about all the random thoughts I've had amidst treating patients, stewing in world events, and who else knows what comes between. All written down in a simple word doco on my phone to be expounded upon. And Lord, we have a lot to go through, evidently. Let's get weird again and go down this rabbit hole back to the Mind Wanderer. I'm going to start by being blunt. Today is a good Mindspace day for once, and a surprisingly good week. Kind of bookended by the first 16 hours of sleep I've had in ages, kind of forcibly checking me in, and forcing myself to check in on myself, to recognize how sleep-deprived I have been. Coming off nights is something else, and the reset of your circadian rhythm is never easy. I've tried every single way. Staying up the night prior to a night shift run to force day sleeping. I've settled on a bit of a marathon option. Treat sleep like normal, wake up the normal time, keep awake for the entire day before the first night shift, and just push through. Pass out the next morning for a halfway decent four hours of sleep. Let that continue for the three to four shifts and then marathon the last night. Sleeping hopefully at a normal time, 8, 9 p.m. at night. The result, 16 hours straight of dreamless sleep. Woo! Ten-year-old me thinking adulting was hard or something. That's part contributor to the... New wholesomeness, or at least the new turn of wholesomeness this week. It's the first day in a long time that I haven't felt overwhelmed by myself, by commitments, responsibilities, life in general, the crashing waves of self-doubt and self-critique assaulting my mind have quietened for the moment. Even recognizing them, that simple act that usually kicks my mind up into a frenzy, doesn't trigger it. I've rested for once. I've worked out early. I hadn't eaten junk food today. It's a small victory, 
but it's a moment. I'm lapping up all this fresh serotonin. For clarity, looking at the past two scripts and comparing it to now, I feel more focused in what I want to discuss. For the last two podcasts, I admit I felt more directionless and struggled with subject matter I wasn't typically used to. The equivalent of eating my proverbial writing vegetables. And I think my writing took a hit. I was trying to write to maintain a quota, not write because I enjoyed the topic as much. Not to say I hated talking about YouTube drama or musical earworms. I didn't. But I struggled. This week, though... We're starting off by celebrating the small victories, waking up on time, drinking less coffee for once. Now, it's yet another week and yet another thought still stuck in my head. This time, I'm hung up on that elusive beast we all hunt for, quality TV. For my previous ramblings, you probably understand the rate at which I watch TV and movies compared to an average healthy binge level. The current flavor of the week is true crime series, because seriously, I don't know how Netflix dumped an actual dozen true crime documentaries this week. Two separate series about the Night Stalker in California, Catching Killers, Monsters Inside, Don't Fuck With Cats, which literally hit a bit close to home, Canada-wise. Not personally. Crime scene and their various iterations, following the coattails of making a murderer and jinx an umpteen number of Dacos. Tangent aside, what makes good TV and how they keep us drawn in? Do we get a good hook or premise holding on to us with promises of character development, ultimate payoff, and conflict, and offering resolution of many, if not all, of the hanging plot threads? A difficult juggling act alone for a miniseries, at least completing it to everyone's satisfaction, and increasingly impossible with long-form TV. Genre-defining series such as The Sopranos, The Wire, The Breaking Bads of the World, everyone remembers the ones that do well, but they remember more the ones that fail up to, well, fail to live up to their dismount. The final season of Lost, the last season and a half of Game of Thrones, the finale of Glee, and most of Glee as it continued in my opinion, but strike me down for that one. And some may say the crux the finale of How I Met Your Mother. Point being, you increase the size, the hype, and the scope, and it makes keeping track of all the spinning plates all the more difficult. Take it in the other direction, and you get something more intimate. Cutting out all the extraneous details, spending more time cultivating the relationship between two main characters in more depth, rather than checking on every single one of the sex and the silly gals. That's my kind of focus this week on individual episodes that either seemingly kind of stand apart from their series or honestly act as significant enough a link back in the bottle episode. A single episode in a series featuring a scant number of main characters in a limited location. Keeping them in the small area allows us to examine the interpersonal relationships much more in depth and much more immediately. They can be lengthy conversation, examining a couple's extraordinary chemistry through their meet-cute reconnection and extended marriage like Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. 
It could be showdowns between the two, like many of the scenes in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards featuring Christoph Waltz's Hans Landa, or the infamous Robert De Niro Al Pacino diner scenes in Heat. Taking that concept makes it fit better for TV, doesn't it? These scene bridgers can make up the majority or entire episodes, dialogue-laden diatribes entrancing the viewer for the entire runtime until you don't realize how much time has passed. Now, looking at these kind of ball episodes in general, you have a good variety, honestly. You have episodes in a critically acclaimed series that keep one-upping themselves in terms of quality, regardless of how removed from the main plot progression they are, such as the succession. You have episodes with a tonal shift that surprise you while keeping to the core of the show, like the documentary season for, um, what was it, American Horror Story, Roanoke, for example. Um, pilot episodes, originally Arabella episodes to a degree, and makes us make a lot of assumptions based on what they provide us character-wise. Works well for anthology series, miniseries, TV, movies, I'd like to kind of focus in on more on ones that made an impact on myself. The ones that kind of stuck in my mind. And there is one recently that my roommate and I have watched that I've not been able to get out of my head. And it's Euphoria. Specifically, one of the two Bridger specials. The first one in 2020 titled, I believe it's Trouble Doesn't Come Always. I may be very close. Again, similar to previous episodes, I aim to minimize the amount of spoilers, but it doesn't let you go into these experiences as a blank slate. So, with all my heart, whether you're invested in the entire series or not, watch Euphoria. Watch all of season one to get the whole context, but particularly the first special. I'm here, raring to go when you get back. Elevator music in the background until then. All set? Let's begin. Euphoria surprises me. Surprised me. Continues to surprise. It was yet another show on my infinitely growing TV binge list that kept on getting shunted further and further down due to time commitments and other ones popping up. The story essentially is focused on a town, middle of America, focused on the teenage characters in this town. Each of these characters is so fully fleshed out, in some ways pun intended. The aim of the series focuses on high school, particularly characters such as Zendaya's Rue, who, in essence, is a character struggling with bipolar disorder, but actively struggling and balancing at the same time addiction to multiple different hard drugs. It's meant as a series to challenge adults' preconceptions of how teenagers are portrayed in media and how much they are exposed to this level of maturity on a daily basis. How they react to that is always a different story. But in essence, the high school experience has markedly changed as any of us have gone through it. Granted, no school, to my incredibly limited knowledge at least, is as progressive or straight-up Machiavellian as Euphoria's is based on the amount of, oh, I don't know, drugs, sex, alcohol, mental health crises. Oh, hey, this is just like high school. Anywho, this is a high school, 
uncontrollably awash in all the controversial topics most teachers or parents have difficulties discussing. My gosh, I can't speak today. Difficulties discussing. To name a few, drug usage, mental health crises, complex mental health crises, sexual experimentation, domestic violence, and abuse. Oh, Lord, the abuse. Why is it compelling, though? Because every single character feels real enough in the sense they provide something to love and hate for every single one of them. It's so much that we love their portrayal regardless of their actions. Jacob Elordi, for example, playing the high school football star Nate. So many moments I yelled out, what the fuck with the level of sociopathic manipulation he uses. On the other side, he is insecure about his sexuality, in part due to insane levels of anger management control, in part due to physical and psychological abuse his father regularly administers. The character does not know how to properly cope with concepts he doesn't understand, or situations that are immediately out of his control. Which brings us to the two characters at focus of the standalone special. Main character, Rue, again. Zendaya's Rue. A 16-year-old girl struggling with bipolar disorder in the context of the remission, relapse, cycling of drug use, and a valued relationship with a girl named Jules that wishes that she wishes went deeper, but doesn't fully understand what depth or having that relationship meant. Saying I love you equaling we're meant to be together for life, talking about everything when only focusing on the immediate. She puts a lot of value in something that is much less stable than she envisions, albeit both her and Jules thinking it's stabler than it is. I digress, though. We find Rue at the start of this episode, shortly after a moment of crisis, a relapse into drug usage in response to a new turn in her relationship. Intro to the episode starts in a dream sequence. Reminder of all the best memories of their most recent morning together, and an altered look into the future they both want, living together in a loft in the city, supporting Jules as she presents at school. This tender, loving, brightly lit atmosphere continues as Jules leaves the apartment. Rue walks around, the, blight, the bright lighting maintained, goes to her bed, grabs a bag underneath, brings the contents to the bathroom, and promptly grinds up pills and snorts them. Despite the best life she wants for herself, she can't even imagine, even in her wildest dreams, without drugs abruptly interrupting it. Exterior. Evening. A motel parking lot. Two-story motel on the left. Diner on the right. Frankie's Diner adoring the front sign. Barely anyone outside. Can barely make out anybody inside. The people who have plans are with family and friends already preparing dinner. It's Christmas Eve, so last minute gift wrapping. And if they have the urge, take them to Christmas masses. The motel itself, two stories, may see a light on the front office, but otherwise not much. The limbo of accommodation, a short stint for visiting family, business people, etc. Temporary living arrangements for others as they find or attempt to find work, new homes, or extended living circumstances in project-style living, like for project sentiments. Even then, can't really make out much of the lights in the room. 
There's room at the end this time, but no one's turning up. All we have here tonight are misfits on Christmas Eve who have either no plans or changed plans at the last minute. Interior of the diner as we slowly move from the outside in. You can pick up the sentiment of the misfits whenever we have a scant view of one or two of the other patrons. A man sitting alone, head in hands, with a single cup of coffee. A waitress flipping through a crossword puzzle and chipping in occasionally to conversation. It's where the Christmas unluckies gather, one of many places offering warmth and refuge from the deluge of normal life and the oppressive and intrusive thoughts with it. This conversation between our two characters tonight, opting for this moment of insight, in the small, enclosed quarters, instead of staying outside and letting the negative thoughts continue to assault you until you're soaking wet. We're trying to make this scantily populated interior as safe of a space as we can, as warm of a place as we can, for what comes next. Our second hero of this hour goes to the outstretched hand to Rue, the one facilitating this moment of reprieve. Coleman Domingo plays Ali, a 50-something recovered drug addict, free for seven years, acting as Rue's sponsor. This is after one of their many meetings, and they met up to get pancakes, simple pancakes. This man is talking, years of all of his mistakes, missed birthdays, rock bottoms, and everything in between, trying to bundle it up to serve as a motivator for a girl he's hoping is as in as complex of a situation as he was, remaining in the realm of his understanding enough that his empathy can reach her, and he's not giving up easily. The difficult part is Ali knows the addiction side of all this. He knows his lows, and trying to use them to guide Rue out of hers. The main difference, as we find out, is that Rue is... Constantly moving from low to low and using the low of addiction and drug usage to distract from the fact that she's actively negative in mood and wanting to kill herself. The conversation starting on getting Rue out of the mindset that led her to her recent relapse slowly starts to unravel into a philosophical debate, a metaphysical argument of worth self-worth and otherwise, what worth we bring to the table and the world, and their, its value. Anger associated with that, for her specifically, at a world that she deems too fucked up to tolerate. A world that took her father from her and created the circumstances that led to her addiction. Loss, leading to trying to find a way to escape it, even for a moment. A world in which she made all the wrong choices to be enthralled by addiction, and no matter how properly fucked the world is, one that she still has to tolerate and live in in this period of time. How do you respond to this? You have two people crying out in the dark here. One listening attentively to the other's crisis, trying to broadcast all of his failings for her to learn from them in time. And the other crying out while perpetually teetering on the fence post between deeper intoxication versus 
deeper into the negative cycle of her cognitions. Trying to connect on matters to help reach him, to bring them out of the dark. Ollie brings up one of his cornerstones with a strength that he finds in his faith, born-again faith in Islam, and offhandly mentions plans in God's hands. Unfortunately, this unintentionally presses on her open wound, which leads to this exchange. That's not true. Really? It's not true. I think there's tons of shit that is of greater power than me. Name one. A Mack truck. Uh-huh. What? Name another. Uh, the ocean. Try again. Uh, <laughs> shit, I would say any song by Otis Redding is of greater power than me. It doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It does. What? The, the, the impact that Try a Little Tenderness had on the world is, is more than I, I could ever do. Well. It's more than probably any of us will ever fucking all do. All right, all right, all right. Little smart ass. Okay, that's not going to cut it. <laughs> Ali, I don't believe in God. Guess what? God doesn't give a fuck if you believe in him. He believes in you. I don't know. That 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 sounds good, but it it doesn't really mean anything. Of course, it means something. If God didn't believe in you, you wouldn't even still be breathing. So you're saying the reason my dad died is because God didn't believe in him? Rue, uh, that's not what I was saying. <sighs> There's nothing that makes me angry in that fucking argument. Hey, that's that's not what I was saying. You know, because every time someone survives like a mass shooting or some terrible fucking earthquake, they always say, you know, I survived for a reason. God saved me for a reason. I have a purpose. <laughs> And then I think to myself, like, okay, well, what you're saying is that your life is more important than that six-year-old who died that day, or the newborn who died that day, or anybody fucking else who died that day. Your life has a purpose, right? Well, why does your life have a purpose and my dad's doesn't? Because I could argue that my dad's purpose was to raise me and my sister. To be there for my mom. That was his purpose think but you know he's dead listen Ali if you're if you're about to tell me that he died for a reason or you know whatever I, I will literally walk the fuck out I, I wasn't he didn't die to teach us a lesson okay he didn't die to you know have us all come together or whatever the fuck people tell people when they don't have anything to say he died because he died. That's it. The same stupid reason I came out of the womb with a couple wires crossed. Right? Just fucking luck. You said it. That's it. Listen. What can you say? Honestly. I play this clip more and more times over the past few days to try and find some kind of greater understanding behind it, or at least something to kind of parse why part of this, and this leads up to increasingly, increasingly better quality dialogue this episode, but why was this our starting point here? I've kept the main rebuttal from Ali out of this intentionally for the moment, but... What can you possibly say, honestly? What can you, when, and you're stuck in a situation you're unfamiliar with, what can you even think of 
attempting to understand. We all are we're empathetic human beings. We all attempt to understand each other, and we all attempt to understand things we want to learn more about, what we want to care about. And you're stuck in a situation when you have someone open themselves up to you like this and are at a loss to words. Unfortunately, <laughs> the best and worst thing to do is answer, but you can't not answer for the entire time. And this is where Ali gets stuck. Rue lays herself on the line like this. Part of the major crux, we've opened her up continuously to have her reach this point of honesty. And now that they're finally delving into the meat of all this here, her true reasons behind doing all this, her not directly asking for, but trying to find a way to get this all to go away, and it's not an easy one. But something or someone has to make a change. And it moves into this key piece of dialogue that Ali brings up afterwards. There are so many revolutions that everyone is a revolutionary. The rich, the poor, the right, the left, the old, the beggar, the bankers. But isn't it beautiful? The revolutions are fought and won so damn fast that people don't have time to implement change because have you heard, huh? There's a new revolution. We'd be surprised to know we're only 25 minutes into this episode and we've already dealt this much into it. Have we resolved anything yet? No, it's an ongoing battle. Rue's walls are slowly coming down. It's the slow, gentle, slow chipping away from Ali's efforts. We've had some wins and losses for both sides, but heartfelt comeback from Ali at this point that, again, forces Rue to take a pause. The pause in general, mid through a, through a conversation like this, at least set up in TV or dramatically, meant to let us digest, to take all these words aside, appreciate the impact of all the points that are made, all the points that Ali just made. In this situation, we follow him back outside as he has a smoke, and we get a sidebar as Rue listens to music, played in the background. For all the focus we put into the, to their relationship for the past 25 minutes, we now have two minutes for us to see their relationship with themselves. What actions either is willing to take when no one is watching, when they think no one is watching, to become the person they want to be in the next in instance to actually push for character growth. In Rue's case, it's listening to a song Jules introduced to her, stewing in the dream promises she's been striving to maintain as we just have a simple focus on her face unblinkingly as the words impact individually into her head, are absorbed, but are slowly processed. In Ali's case, we get a massive background info dump. Call somebody on the phone. We only hear his side of the conversation, but we pick up the main things. He's calling his kids estranged, tr trying to repair the re his relationship with them. And Christmas Eve is his latest attempt to repair the decades of damage he did and is trying to actively repair. Talking to his son on the phone, trying to be as innocent as possible, to avoid 
reigniting some of their old conversations and arguments. Attempting to talk to every single one of his family members who has different opinions on how he's treated them in the past. Watching his face lighten up when he hears his grandson's voice on the phone. And the stark reality that this is the most time he's managed to speak through them. In series for a long, long time. And it only lasts two minutes. I've been racking my brain to explain why this entire hour-long exchange resonates so well. Is it the relaxed atmosphere in which they meet, the non-judgmental atmosphere of the pancakes in the diner scenario? Is it the frankness by which all of their thoughts come out? Is it the bluntness by which they open up more and more about their authentic self? The reason why this bottle episode works so well is that every action that Rue and Ali take is so believable. We barely know there's characters coming into this. If you've only watched this episode, you're only getting the keynotes of all this. Their conversation is making us believe this one step forward, two steps back progression that seems like we're getting nowhere with Rue, but each step forward is making an impact, albeit being shunted two steps back with her progressing forward. To the point, later on, when all hinges, Rue opens up regarding her depression and baseline willingness to end her life. One pervasive thought that she can't shake. The last attempt, in the last five minutes of this episode, Ollie takes the shaker from this self-perpetuating cycle. Bluntly asks, you say you weren't going to be here much longer. Okay. Okay, then. How do you want your mother and sister to remember you? It's a simple thought, but we can see it cutting through Rue's cloud of negativity, self-critique, and this cognitive black hole she's sucked into. In seconds, we see the words hit her mind, the look of recognition in her eyes as she realizes that throughout this entire hour-long conversation, she forgot to think about the protective factors in her life. How could she? How could she leave with them still around? Tears down her face. The battle between her recognition of this and the active negative thoughts. She answers, I want to be as someone who tried really hard to be someone I couldn't. Goosebumps. Shortly after this, the episode wraps up. Ali reaffirms, reaffirms himself as a pillar of support to help Rue through the next steps. Rue's direction itself slightly more clear than when we started this hour, but we still have that uncertainty because while we think this may have been a win for the moment, this is way too complex and changing from moment to moment. But we're optimistic for the two seconds we have. The intervention scene itself in fiction and in documentary series plays itself up as a moment of intensity catharsis and optimistic hopefulness no matter how much uncertainty you still have and how much you've going to learn about these characters why does this one particularly stick in my head though i mean i guess we're going back to the basics we brought up in the beginning about the bottle episode allowing characters to interact with each other in ways the normal show setting wouldn't allow 
Euphoria's chaotic nature and constant noise of all the side plots fighting for equal time, equally interesting, but removing two characters is one of our standouts. The other would be the surprisingly supportive atmosphere. I feel safe in that diner. In real life, probably not, but I feel safe in this diner. It's warm. It's something almost alien in this show. And you can definitely know the difference. We start outside in the dark environment, going into the warmly lit diner, and we end the episode the same way, returning to the world that we have to deal with. And both characters recognizing it's the world they're returning to live in. It's refreshing for a show so wrapped up in chaos and just so much politicking in a high school environment. Now we have a second to breathe and actually properly breathe without choking on the smoke around us. I'll be stewing on this one for a while still, but honestly, would love to hear any thoughts from anyone listening out there. If you can't tell, I've run myself into a loop, and I'm at the point where I need to reread a thesaurus so words escape me less. And anyway, feels like the outside environment right now is <laughs> getting similar to the show. Not sure if that's coming through, but it is pouring rain outside, and being 9.30 at night, I think it's a time for me to put a pause in this, at least for now. That's the mini mind wander for our week. No doubt next time I'll find yet another TV episode to sink my teeth into, and either geek out about extensively, or find a different way to over-describe for 35 minutes. Once again, before I leave, I bring it back to all the shout-outs I made at this episode's beginning. Regarding Equality in Texas, there is a group called Equality Texas, specifically the Transvisible Project, searching to use a public education campaign to reduce prejudice against transgender Texans by effectively communicating their stories. I put a link below, but there's no amount that you can't give and can't support in this environment. Regarding our crisis in Ukraine, infinite number of areas, but I've linked a big four that I've been able to find down below. Caritas Australia, link in solidarity with Caritas, C-A-R-I-T-A-S, and their Ukrainian support. Ukraine Crisis Appeal, which is a link between multiple charities, including Caritas. United Help Ukraine, and if you want a bit more direct if you look at the redcross.org.ua, the Ukrainian Red Cross site, you can donate directly to support on the ground. You know what this week's episode is brought to you by. In general, though, if you want the summary, the reminders to take care of all of each other. And in better grammar, take care of yourselves. It's not love, love in the world, so you guys... Love each other. We love you. I love you. Keep on spreading that around. I'll see you next time on the next one. In the meantime, sleep tight.